Or do you feel like you're on the winning side if you're trusting in Jesus this morning? Do you feel like you've had a great week, a great summer actually? And, And more than that, you're becoming more holy by the day, by the hour in fact. Not only did you make it to church this morning against all that would conspire against you leaving the house. You know, sin is becoming uh, less and less of an issue. Non-Christian colleagues and friends at school are queuing up to ask how they too can trust in Jesus. Your life is marked by unceasingly joyful other person-centeredness and prayerfulness. Is that you this morning? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's hard to believe sometimes that you're on the winning side at all. So what if someone came along and said, do you know what, here is the one thing you have been missing all this time. You don't need to struggle with your bad temper and your selfishness. You can have a more intimate relationship with God. What do you mean you've never heard him speak to you directly, personally, and tell you his precise plans for your life? What do you mean you struggle to pray sometimes and you feel spiritually weak? You don't need to struggle like that. You can be truly victorious. Wouldn't that sound attractive? The situation in the church that the Apostle John was writing to in this letter was that some in the church he was writing to had left. Now, people leave churches for all kinds of reasons. We've been thinking about that this morning. And over the summer, we've seen people leave us for good reasons. And often you can leave for good reasons. Sometimes you can leave a church, though, for bad reasons. Not because you've got to go back overseas or you've got to move to a different part of the UK or or, or whatever it might be. No, they were leaving for completely different reasons. If you flick forward to chapter 2, over the page, to verse 18, you can see that these are people that John calls Antichrist. Now, forget red-horned beasts and medieval art or whatever image Antichrist might bring up for you. Antichrist just means what it sounds like literally. These people have shown by their words and their deeds as they have departed and left that they are anti-Christ. They are against Christ, says John. And the reason they're leaving, as becomes clear as you read through the letter, is because they think the church that John is writing to is spiritually deficient. They've gone out to seek something or create something that is more in accord with their beliefs. Now, we're going to see later in the letter what John has to say about all that, but the main issue as they leave is what they leave behind, which is a vacuum of unsettling uncertainty. Because can you think what the people who are left behind might be feeling? Have I missed something? Are these people onto something about God that I can't see? What if they are right and we people left behind are wrong? They leave behind a sense of inferiority, a sense of missing out. And so John writes to them to say, 
Be reassured. That's what we've called this sermon series in this letter. Reassured. When you're feeling spiritually inferior, when you're feeling like you must be doing something wrong because those people over there who call themselves Christians seem to have got it all together and you haven't, here is reassurance. That is what this letter is about. Now, this letter often causes a fair amount of debate and a little bit of confusion. If you haven't read it recently, I'd encourage you to read it this week. It's only five chapters, doesn't take long. And I wouldn't be surprised if you come away thinking, well, hang on a minute, what exactly is this all about? Now, it's a bit like listening to one half of a phone call. You know, we've got John's half of this letter that he wrote to this church. But we don't actually know exactly who the church was that he was writing to. We don't actually know precisely what the issues that they were facing were, beyond what we can piece together about those who have departed from the verses in front of us. It's possible that this letter was written to the church in Ephesus, because there are kind of links with the vocabulary with the letters of the church in Ephesus. Not Ephesians, you might, not that one, which is Paul's letter to, to Ephesus, but uh, the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And again, John uses the same kind of words there, the same kind of vocabulary. So people wonder, what does, is this letter also written to the church in Ephesus? But that's just a theory. We don't know. And then when we actually read the letter... We might have questions. Well, you know, there are words that we recognise, like love and Jesus and commandments. You know, that's all well and good. I like those words. I kind of recognise them from elsewhere in the Bible. There are verses that I might have heard before. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is light. God is love. We love before he fir- because he first loved us. Now all those are sort of verses which plucked from this letter. If you've spent any time in church, you may have heard them before. It's all here. And yet at face value, when you read through the letter as a whole... It can seem a little bit repetitive. It can seem a little bit confusing because there's other verses too. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. What does that mean? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, I thought John said. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. What does he mean? Chapter 3, verse 21. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him whatever we ask. Whatever we ask, really, wasn't it? What does that mean? Chapter 5, verse 16. There is a sin that leads to death, but not all sin leads to death. Well, hang on a minute. What is this sin that leads to death? What is he talking about? And then the very last verse of the letter. Out of nowhere, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's the first time the word idols appears in the whole book, and it's the very last word in the book. It's a puzzling letter. Now, it's often thought to be a letter that is about Christian assurance. Chapter 5, verse 13 might suggest that. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know 
that you have eternal life. I don't know if you know the end of John's Gospel. We heard it this morning, in fact, in the, in the first reading. So that you may have eternal life, says John, uh, says he writes his first, writes his gospel. So that you may have, believe in the Son and have eternal life. Now he's saying, he's writing so that you may know that you have eternal life. And that's slightly different, isn't it? It's what we call assurance. Not just that you should have eternal life, but that you should know that you have it. And to that end, people often see three tests in the letter. The test of belief. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? The test of obedience. Do you keep God's commandments? The test of love. Do you love other Christians? And so people say, well, there you go. Those are the tests. If you can see those things in your life, take heart. You are a real Christian. But the issue with that in isolation is, well, hang on a minute. How much obedience then do I need because I'm not actually that great at loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, I, I certainly give it a go, but there's, there's room for improvement. And, well, I habitually fall into sin despite my best intentions. Given the right set of circumstances, I will lose my temper with my family. Or I will wallow in self-pity. And the thing is, it doesn't just happen once. It's not just a sort of one-off thing. It just seems to happen rather more often than I want it to. So you say these are the marks, but they don't actually in and of themselves give me that much assurance. But one of the things we're going to see as we go through the letter is that John's concerns for the Christians that he writes to is to be reassuring in the face of those who have departed from them. Those who have departed from them have made them feel like they're not real Christians. And he's saying, you don't need to listen to them when they say you're missing out. You have what you need already. It's the difference between an exam paper and an exam certificate. Those are two documents we may well be familiar with. We may well have sat in front of both of them at different times in our lives. They are kind of connected, but they produce a very different effect when they're put in front of us. An exam paper makes us nervous, twitchy, worried we might not measure up. And if we use John's tests of belief and obedience and love like that, we're not going to measure up. But an exam certificate gives us confidence and reassurance that the measuring up has already happened. Particularly when we're unsettled because of people saying openly or implying that we are missing out on the real thing. You're not a real Christian, they're saying. Come over here, come with us, we'll show you what a real Christian is. No, John says, you belong, you've got the real thing, it's okay, be reassured. That is the aim of this letter. And hopefully we'll see exactly how that is the case over the coming term. But before we meet those anti-Christs who've departed, who are unsettling the church, John spends the first chapter and a half just talking about Jesus and the gospel. The message that Christians believe about Jesus. He doesn't want to get into polemics yet, who said what and how to respond and all that kind of thing. He just wants to get clear on who Jesus is and what a Christian is. And we see the first bit of that in these 
verses as he begins by reassuring them that they know the real God. Don't listen to those who will convince you otherwise. How come? You know the real God. How come? Well, as you can see on the outline, he appears in history. That which was from the beginning, verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. It's not hard to see that John's letter starts in a very similar way to two other books in the Bible. Maybe you've noticed Genesis starts in the beginning. And then John's Gospel, the first book he wrote, starts in in a similar way. In the beginning was the Word. And so here is the same John again in a kind of follow-up letter to his Gospel, starting once again in the beginning. What was God up to before creation? Well, in one sense, the Bible has very little to say about that, except to make it clear that in the beginning, God was already there. Who made God? Well, no one made God. He has always existed. Yet not as a lonely, distant old man with no one to talk to for eternity, but as three persons in the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in a perfect, unchanging relationship marked by love and goodness and life. Eternal life. You cannot get more alive than God. God the Trinity is the source of all life. And that life, can you see in verse 1? That life was there in eternity. How then do we know this God of life? He appeared. And we have heard him, John says. We have seen him. We have looked at him. We have touched him. And these words and ideas are there throughout John's earlier gospel. From the start of Jesus' life, John chapter 1, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. Then through the rest of the gospel, through a ministry where John explicitly says, he uses those words about being seen. They saw what Jesus did. They saw his signs, the miracles, the extraordinary things he did. They heard what Jesus taught what he said about his relationship as the son with the father. And then even beyond that ministry on earth, through his death to his resurrection, we heard in the first reading the emphasis that John put there on how Thomas touched and he felt Jesus, who had recently risen from the dead. And it was because of that that he was convinced this was the real thing. This was Jesus. He really had risen. So as he starts this letter now, John is reminding his readers, Jesus lived and he died and he rose as a real human being who was also God, the eternal life on earth. Because of Jesus, we can be confident we know the real God. So think about it. This sets Christianity apart from all other world religions, doesn't it? you're looking into Christian things and you're not yet convinced of these things, I wonder if you've seen this. So Muhammad, he had what he claimed was a message from God, a revelation that was written down in the Quran, but how do we know it's really authentic? We kind of have to take his word for it. It's just one guy's word against the world. Other religions are the same. They have their holy books with messages of what a good life looks like. 
But in Christianity, the message is a person. That is literally what John is saying in verse 1. The first half of the verse makes it sound like he's talking about a message, a word from God. But by the end of the verse, it's clear that the message, that word, is the word, the Son of God, a person who could be seen, heard, and touched. Not just by one person, but by thousands that, they, that he came into contact with. So often people say, and maybe friends would say this at work or at school, they might say, you know, if God is there, well, why doesn't he show himself? So we can know what he's like. Well, that's exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. He came down onto our level so that we can know him. How would you feel about having dinner with the Queen? Not just a big banquet with lots of other people. Not even the 45 minutes a week that the Prime Minister gets to talk politics with her. But a proper evening at leisure, just you and Her Majesty. How would you feel about that? Well, actually, on one level, many people would probably think that that, that, that was you know, quite exciting and, and she certainly comes across as a very pleasant person. But be honest, would you be able to keep the conversation going? Do you, do you know anything at all about her main interests? What are her main interests? Corgis? Racehorses? You've got more than a, a sentence to, to put together about that. And w- w- would the Queen be able to relate in any way to what you get up to on a daily basis? That's your fairly nerve-wracking thought, isn't it? Having to talk to the Queen for a whole evening by yourself. Excuse me. Well, in many ways, an evening with a trusted, known, beloved friend is far more attractive. And we might feel like that to an even greater degree with God. He's so far removed from our experience. How can he possibly know me as I really am? How can I ever really know him well you can because he's come down onto our level he's come out of the palace into our kitchen he's come and got his hands dirty in the mess of our fallen world so we can know the real God be reassured that is the first thing to see here. But of course then we might ask, well that's all very well, but but all that happened 2,000 years ago. I want to know God now. I want to know him today. How does what he did then connect with me now? That's why we need to hear the second thing here. He was proclaimed by the apostles. Verses 2 to 4. Let me read these verses again slightly differently. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our, our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete 
Can you hear what John is doing there? He's putting this massive emphasis on himself as an apostle, an eyewitness. Through most of the letter, with just a couple of exceptions, there is a sharp contrast between we, the apostolic eyewitnesses, and you, the church member, wherever this church is. Now the plural we there is is probably a sort of royal we, referring to John in his office as an apostle and him and the other apostles together as a group. John is saying it's not just that God the eternal life appeared, we saw and now we testify and we proclaim. Now you can trace that word testify through John's gospel and there's lots of testifying that goes on. John the Baptist testifies about Jesus the Son, the Father testifies about Jesus the Son, the scriptures testify about Jesus the Son, Jesus the Son testifies about Jesus the Son. But you know, the one group who do not testify about the Son during the Gospel, do you know that group is? The disciples, who become the apostles. But as we saw in the opening verse, Jesus says, John 15, 24, they will testify about him. They will testify about him when they've seen the whole of his ministry, life, death, resurrection, he's ascended to heaven, and when the Holy Spirit has come, he says, then they will testify when they've got a message about the whole of Jesus, the whole package of his ministry, the whole of who he is. They can testify to him. Here is this eyewitness of Jesus from beginning to end, testifying to him and proclaiming to him. And so that means if you want to know the real historical Jesus, and through him the real eternal God, you need to listen to the apostles. So that, he says, you may have fellowship with us, he says, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So the net result of that is, where is eternal life manifest? Where is it seen in the world today, in Hampstead, in the 21st century? Where do we get to know about eternal life? It is seen in the teaching of of the apostles. Can you see? That is what he's saying. If you want to know the real God, you need to know the real Jesus of history. If you want to know the real Jesus of history, you need to know the teaching of the apostles, which of course you'll find not in the talking heads on TV or on social media or in the opinions of today's spiritual or secular gurus, but you'll find it in the Bible. So it's like a family tree. Suppose I want to prove to you that I'm a direct descendant of William the Conqueror. If I'm going to do that, every link in the chain going back all those years has to be sound, doesn't it? It's no good having a family tree which starts at the top with William the Conqueror and goes down and down and down through sons and daughters and maybe ends up in in the 1500s somewhere in Wales, for example. And then there's a bit of a gap and a few dots. And then I take up the story in London with my grandparents at the beginning of the 21st century. You're going to say, well, it's ridiculous, you're mad, there's a gap. You're not really descended from William the Conqueror at all. And you'd be right. Well, maybe you'd be right. Who knows? We don't know, do we? But John is saying here, here is a kind of family tree that starts all the way back in eternity. Then God the eternal life became a man who was seen and heard and touched by the apostles who testified to him, that he proclaimed him. And we have that testimony in front of us in the Bible. Every link in the chain is sound. Can you see? There are no gaps. Now over the summer I read a couple of books that spell out how sound those links are. 
with the Gospels, for example, the manuscript evidence that these Gospels we have in front of us were the ones that were written down uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, that evidence is there, it's sound. We can be confident that we have in front of us what the apostles wrote about Jesus. And then when you look into the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, it's full of these sort of extraordinary details that you miss when you read, because they're, they're kind of incidental to the facts. But they corroborate this, the point of it is they corroborate this as eyewitness testimony. So I was hearing recently about all the names in the Gospels. You know, you read through one of the Gospels, it's full of people's names, random people, just names there. And why does Mark tell us that the name of the man who carried Jesus' cross was Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus? Why why put that in? Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus got nothing to do with the narrative. They're not in the story. Why are they mentioned at all? Well, presumably because the first readers knew who these people were. They could go and ask them, hey, Alexander and Rufus, tell us what your dad did. And names are striking in other ways as well. The names that occur in the four Gospels, often independently of each other, this is not just you know, the bit that's copied from, you know, or that's the, the, the same between different Gospels, but independently of one another, then those names, statistically, if you kind of list them out, they match the names that all the evidence from outside the Bible tells us these names were commonly in use in Israel at that time. And actually, it's quite distinctive, those names. They were just used in that part of Israel. They weren't used across the whole ancient world. They were just used there. So if you lived somewhere else, for example, you wouldn't know that. If you were trying to make up this, um, this document, fabricating a whole history that, that never happened, you, you wouldn't come up with this list of names. These names fit with the kind of names, this is what people were called in those days. Simon, Alexander, Rufus, and whatever it might be, in the kind of statistical um, occurrences that you would expect. In other words, you, you, the more you look into this, you just find, yeah, look, this is eyewitness stuff. These are eyewitnesses writing down what happened, so that we might have confidence that what we have in front of us is the truth, so that we might know the real God who appeared in history as Jesus and is proclaimed and testified to us by the apostles. Be reassured. Do you see? So that is why we want to be a Bible-driven church. Not just because it's one possible brand of Christianity, but because it's the way you can know that you are sticking with the apostles and through them sticking with Jesus and through them knowing the real God. When it comes to false teaching about God and about Jesus, as we'll see later in the letter, so often people who are teaching false things... Well, they don't say they've stopped believing in Jesus. No one would be so silly as to say that. They are love Jesus, they say. But they do distance themselves from the apostles. You know, the apostle Paul founded Christianity and that's where we went wrong. We need to get back to the teachings of Jesus himself. No. The teachings of Jesus are the teachings of the apostles, including Paul and John and all the others. Or or people will say, you don't need the Bible now to know Jesus. That was the Holy Spirit speaking then, but the Holy Spirit is saying something else now. 
John says, no, it's only through the apostles' teaching that you can be sure that you know and are hearing the real God. So why look anywhere else? In a city like London, many of us will be here for a few years and then off again. And this will be just one of many churches we may be part of for the coming years. When you're choosing a church, you're considering what the right church is for you. You might think about the music, the time of the service, the warmth of the welcome, the midweek activities, the quality of the coffee. But John would urge us to make sticking with the apostles' teaching about Jesus the number one criterion for choosing a church. We might hear about a church that where, where everything looks flashy and the technology is right up there and it's culturally relevant and everyone is shiny happy and doesn't have any problems. We might think, I'm, I'm missing out. I'm doing it wrong. John says, stick with the message of the apostles about Jesus in the Bible. We might hear a podcast, we might read a book, we might hear of some new teaching that says in some way, here is the one thing you've been missing all this time. Do this and your Christian life will be sorted. John says, no, stick with the message of the apostles about Jesus in the Bible. That is all you need and you already have it. You are on the winning side, even if it doesn't always look like it. Be reassured. And so as he finishes, and we finish with this, verse 4, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. His goal is joy. Not spoiling everyone's fun, not creating a dry, boring, dull, bookish Christianity, but living, vibrant, relational, joyful Christianity. That is living, vibrant, relational and joyful because it is connected to the real God. The God of life. Through the Jesus of history, proclaimed by the apostles in the Bible. Be reassured, you don't need to look elsewhere, stick with the real thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we need not look anywhere else than in the Jesus of history proclaimed by the apostles so that we might know you, really know you, today, here and now. Please keep us rooted in Jesus, in your word, as a church, as individuals. May we not be tempted to look elsewhere, may we look only to you through Jesus as he is proclaimed to us by the apostles. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.